Hey, Joe, you used to be in a lot of debt, right? I was in a ton of debt. Did you ever use one debt to pay off another? I did. I used consolidation loans to stop mm. using my credit card, get them all in one place, and have just a single payment. Ah, interesting. Okay, well, we are about to tackle a question from a listener who is thinking about using one debt to pay off another. And we're going to do that because this is the Afford Anything podcast, the show that understands you can afford anything, but not everything. Every choice that you make carries a trade-off. So what trade-offs are you willing to accept? That's what this show is here to explore. I'm Paula Pant, the host of the show. And this is my buddy, former financial planner, Joe Salcihai, who joins me every other week to answer questions that come from you, the community. I'm glad that we're recording a show because I thought you just wanted to remind me that I used to be in a lot of debt. I was like, why would <laughs> yes. a friend do that to me? I know, right? <laughs> Such a nice way to, to open the morning. <laughs> Remember, Joe, how bad you felt all those years? Aww. Well, our first question hopefully comes from somebody who doesn't feel quite uh, as bad or, or from, you know, from someone who is going to be able to, um, you know, pull off a, a big turnaround. Either and way. This- we can make him feel better, Paula. Right, exactly. So our first question comes from Knoxville. Hi, Paula. I love your podcast. Uh, you can call me Knoxville. I have a question as to whether I should use a HELOC on my primary residence to pay off a 401k loan that I took out in order to make a down payment on an investment property. And so to give you some background, I work a W-2 job making about $230,000 per year, and I have a flexible 1099 job where I make between ten dollars to $40,000 per year. I file as head of household. I have no credit card debt, and I'm about 50% of my target emergency fund goal. I do have a retirement account with a 7% company match. Currently, the retirement account has $410,000. And I was able to take out a first loan to use as a down payment towards my primary residence. I finished paid off that loan earlier in 2022. And currently, the primary residence has an equity of 615000 on a 15-year mortgage at 2% interest rates. The HELOC is available in full at 30000 with an interest rate of 8%. I have been listening to your podcast and I decided to take the plunge into real estate investment. And so I got a brand new property, two bedroom, two bath. It's out of state and will need a property manager. And there's also HOA fees attached. The mortgage is a 30 year mortgage at 7% interest rate. With HOA fees, property management and mortgage, total expenses will come up to about 1825 our new renters will be moving in in the next two to three weeks. So my question is, should I use my HELOC with an interest rate of 8% to pay off that 401k loan that I have with an interest rate of 5.25%? Total amount of that loan was $50,000. And that way, I am able to maximize my return on my 401k. And then I would just slowly chip away with the payments on my HELOC. Does that make financial sense or should I use my HELOC in some other way? Thank you so much once again. And I'm just interested in hearing your insight. Thank you. Oh, we have insights. <laughs> Knoxville, thank you for the question. First of all, congratulations. You've got 
a $410,000 balance in your retirement account, nearly half a million. It's, it's actually, that's a funny because it's not quite 401k in your 401k. Uh, <laughs> it's actually 410k in your 401k. Uh, anyway, those are the kinds of things that make me happy. Zara. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you've got a healthy, healthy retirement account. You have a great home value, $615,000 uh, home on a 15-year mortgage at a 2% rate. Wow. Mm. Wow. So you're mm-hmm. doing so well. No credit card debt. You're halfway to your emergency fund goal. And uh, let's talk about this loan. You've got a 401k loan at 5.25%. It's a $50,000 loan. Joe, and I'd love to hear what you think, Joe. I I am in favor, Knoxville, of what you have suggested. Um, despite <laughs> I am against. Ooh. I am against. Whoa. <laughs> Boxing gloves are on. Here it comes. Here it comes. Okay, so we'll, I'll start with the, the devil's advocate argument, also known as Joe's argument, <laughs> which is if you're paying off the 401k loan, you're paying off a loan that's, that has a 5.25% interest rate uh, and keeping a loan with an 8% interest rate. So from an interest rate arbitrage perspective, uh, it does not make sense to pay off the 401k loan. From an interest rate arbitrage perspective, it makes sense to uh, keep the 401k loan at 5.25 and more aggressively, you know, use that same $50,000, you know, chip away at that HELOC because that's the more expensive mortgage. Also, the 30-year that you have on your uh, rental property, 7% more expensive. So, so from an interest rate point of view, I get it. But I like what Knoxville said about get more money in that 401k, you know, replenish that money so it can make more money for her. Because once that loan is paid off, it isn't simply that her interest is going to go from 5.25 down to nothing. It's that an additional $50,000 are going to go into a tax deferred account, which will then have compounding tax deferred growth. And so I like the idea of beefing up the tax-deferred 401k by virtue of paying off the loan before I start tackling the HELOC. I like everything you said there. And that is a glass-half-full approach. But what I learned is that bad things happen all the time, and they happen when you least expect it. I I have two issues, Paula. Number one, right now with a 401k loan, the damage is done. Uh, I really don't like 401k loans. I love paying them back. I think paying them back is awesome. I like the fact that as she puts that money back in, she's going to get more the ability now to increase that sale that's going to float with hopefully rising stock markets over time. But 401k loans really aren't long-term. So she'll have that paid off even on a regular schedule over a fairly short amount of time. And so I look at the types of loans that she has. A 401k loan, once she pays that back, she never wants to, t- she never wants to take that out again. And that loan will be closed. It is a fixed loan for a fixed amount of time. And to get another one, she's going to have to apply for another one. Now she's borrowing from herself. So she's going to accept, she's going to accept herself. But it isn't an open line of credit, and she's taking that money from an open line of credit that only has so much money available, so she's going to take money from an open line, and she's going to move it to a closed position, which means there's going to be another application process to restart it. And then, uh, so I don't like 
getting rid of the flexibility that the home equity line of credit gives her in case bad stuff happens. Now, the good news about the 401k loan is the only thing that everybody tells you and I, Paula, what do people say when they say, well, I got a 401k loan. Well, I'm paying myself back the interest. (laughs) Yes, you are. And at this point, that is a good thing. I mean, it is great that she's going to pay herself that interest rate and that's going to go into her account. So we know what this money is going to do. And every payment that she makes into that 401k loan puts more money into that equity sale, which which you love and I love and everybody loves. I just don't like taking an open position that gives her more flexibility and locking in mm. this closed loan. So fundamentally, Joe, what you're talking about, and to frame this into some context for everyone who's listening, uh, you're discussing the difference between a revolving loan and an installment loan. Yeah. And you don't like using a revolving loan to pay off an installment loan. Right. For the sake of everyone, so you have the framework of this, think of loans, um, you know, in your mental classification of different types of loans that are out there. Think of loans as as either revolving or installment. A revolving loan is something like uh, a HELOC, an open line of credit, or like a credit card, which a credit card is also an open line of credit. Those type of revolving loans give you a certain maximum amount that you could potentially borrow, like on your credit card, for example, you could potentially borrow five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars, whatever you are approved for within your credit card, right? But you don't have to borrow that entire amount um, on the day that you get your credit card, right? When you when you receive a credit card, you don't receive ten thousand or twenty thousand in cash. Instead, you receive the ability to at at whim borrow up to that amount and. With a you know in a credit card you do it five dollars here fifteen dollars there uh, that slowly builds to that amount and you also don't have a fixed monthly payment your minimum monthly payment varies depending on how much you've borrowed so if in January you use your credit card a lot uh, your minimum monthly payment is going to be a lot higher if in August you uh, the used it not at all, and you actually haven't used it at all in several months, that minimum monthly payment is going to be a lot lower, maybe even zero if it's got a zero balance. So that's the nature of a revolving loan. An installment loan, by contrast, is a student loan, a car loan, a fixed rate mortgage payment, something where you pay a fixed amount every single month. And you borrowed a fixed amount versus also a revolving amount. So you know, in the home equity line of credit, to your point, if I, you know, take $5,000 off, it's just an open line. I could take 5000 If I do that with a car loan, it, maybe I take an extra 5000 to do something with, but now I borrowed it and I have to do that fixed payment back. Mm. And so philosophically, the reason that you don't like using a revolving to pay off an installment is largely, uh, Joe, and tell me if this is a correct analysis of, of your motivation, that that revolving gives you maximum flexibility and you don't like taking money from a flexible bucket and using it to pay off money from an inflexible bucket. Yeah. On the first tier, yes. Then the second tier is specifically a 401k loan. And what's going to happen if we slow play the 401k loan over the next, you know, I don't know how many years she has left, if it's three years or four years that she has left, but it's, you know, in the big scheme of things, it's not going to be all that long. Yeah. The amount that she has borrowed, it's it's more than 10% of her total 401k balance. And 
as I see it, if she can get that money back into her 401k and working for her and compounding for those additional three or four years, particularly given that it's tax-deferred compounding, it can have some significant benefits over, over time. So that's the reason I like the idea of, you know, with a 401k or with any type of tax-advantaged account, there are limits to how much you can put in every year. And so unlike other types of accounts, the your ability to shovel money into that in, into a 401k is by law limited. Um, your ability to make new contributions is limited. And so the more money that you can just shovel into those and get working for you on a compounding tax deferred basis, the better. That's the reason I like paying it back. But I think we always have to think about what could go wrong along the way. So assuming that she does this, Paula, let's say that she does this, because if she does, what I would say, if I were advising her, would be, what's your contingency plan now if something goes wrong? Where is that money going to come from if she has some big need for money between the time that she puts that in and the time that that home equity loan uh, line of credit gets paid off? Where's that money going to come from? And maybe the answer is, because I don't think we got this in the question, maybe that home equity line of credit is so big, she's got so much available, that she's going to have plenty of of additional money that she can still go grab if she needs it. Um, I don't know. That would be my next question. What is your contingency plan? You know, I had a, I had a, uh, a client when I was advisor who worked for the Michigan Highway Department. She was an engineer, and she told me that, before they built any highway, they would always think about what could go wrong mm -hmm. and they would, they would build contingencies for all of those things. This is that process. If I take money from a revolving line and pay down my installment loan, what could go wrong and how would I solve that? Once she does that, Paula, then I'm on board. All right. Then maybe the, the solution between both of our answers, Joe, is that her first step is to beef up that emergency fund because she said her emergency fund is 50% of its target goal. Maybe step one, get the emergency fund to 100% of target goal and then only after that pay off the 401k loan. What do you think about that? I just think this process is is wonderful. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that you're thinking about what would be the stop gaps, this is going to make the plan far more unstoppable, far more unbreakable. And, and I love it. I don't know. I don't know which one's best, but, but certainly that is a step in the right direction. No, oh, excellent. All right. So Knoxville, Joe, some food for thought. Joe and I disagree on the approach, but I think uh, we've explained sort of the, the principles that underpin both of our lines of thinking, as well as, uh, you know, what needs to be done before you take the next step. And I think it's generally in, in our nature as well. Paula's glass half full. Mm. I'm glass could be full, but it also <laughs> could be empty. We never know. I'm definitely not glass half empty. I will tell you the glass is half full all the time too, but, um, but I do think it's, it's, it's in our nature. Mm, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I am a little bit more. Um, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Optimistic. Yes. Let's go. Awesome. Well, Knoxville, I hope that was helpful. Uh, I hope it gave you a couple of different considerations as you decide which course of action is, is best for you. So as, as always on the Afford Anything podcast, we don't tell you what to do. We give you a framework for thinking about how to arrive at the solution. We should have an episode, though, where we just tell people what to do. 
<laughs> put uh, $32 on red, you know? <laughs> the fourth horse in the fifth race. What? <laughs> My question was about real estate. Who cares? <laughs> well, Knoxville, thank you for the question. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. All right. So what are some of the next really big goals that you're saving for? Maybe you're saving for a down payment on a home. Maybe you're saving to buy your next car in cash or to at least make a pretty big down payment on your next car. Maybe you're saving for a kid's college fund or for your own college fund. Well, there's an app called Monarch that makes it easy to help you reach your financial goals. In fact, the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com Paula. Monarch has a very simple, intuitive design. They have loads of built-in features that help you collaborate with your spouse or partner, with your financial advisor. You, know, you can invite them to your account at no extra cost. They'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. You can customize it to look exactly like you want it to look like. You can customize the types of notifications that you get. You know, I've set mine up so that I only see the big ticket stuff. I personally don't want to see the little things. I just want to see big ticket items. So I've set up my notifications accordingly, but you can do it however you prefer. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can make it your own. And Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Paula. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Paula for your extended 30-day free trial. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search, it's to match. And you can do that with Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform that has over 350 million global monthly visitors. It allows you to schedule, screen, and message so that you can connect with candidates faster. And beyond just hiring faster, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, which means Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Whenever I hire somebody inside of Afford Anything, I'm doing so because we are already overloaded with work. We have way too much on our plates, and so we need to hire so that somebody can start taking some of that stuff off of our plates. But hiring itself is added workload on top of already busy workload. So it's great to have a platform like Indeed that helps you hire faster and find higher quality matches. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Paula. Just go to Indeed.com slash Paula right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Paula. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I didn't know how to optimize what was in my wallet. So I didn't know how to optimize how to use travel rewards to pay for vacations. But now I've got a new card 
with more miles and I'm getting business class upgrades. I'm getting lounge access. I'm getting all kinds of perks that I didn't even know that I was missing out on. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access, wherever you go next. Make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Our next question comes from Joelle, who is interested in rent to own. Let's hear from Joelle. Hi, Paula and Joe. Joelle here. I own a home free and clear that I essentially inherited. And I would rather deploy its value in other ways. In other words, I didn't choose the home's location, its characteristics, but I have been renting it, and I have a great tenant who may be interested in buying my home and having it for the long term. But before I approach him or offer it as an option, I need to understand it better for myself. In episode 409, Kyle mentioned rent to own, but he had a mortgage on his property, and I was left still wondering about the details of that kind of agreement. Like Kyle, I have heard it also described as, quote, ideal, but I don't understand why or for who. I just want to know, how does it work? I know there are two forms, a lease option and a lease purchase. So my tenant pays X amount currently. If we enter into a rent-to-own agreement, does he pay X amount plus some that counts towards his down payment? And how long do we decide to do this until he reaches a certain down payment or do we just arbitrarily choose a time frame like three years? So once we reach that point, the end point, then what happens? Does he march off to the bank and apply for a traditional mortgage for the remainder of what he hadn't paid towards the house? In other words, why would property owners enter into these kinds of agreements? I have looked and tried to do research, but I really just see the pros and cons from the tenant's perspective. I'm asking here because you and Joe know how to unpack a question, convey the pros and cons clearly, and debate them. I really hope that this discussion will benefit someone else who may be in the similar situation as me or just want to educate themselves. Thanks so much for all that you do for the community. I really have learned so much over the years. Thank you. Uh, Joelle, thank you for such a sweet message. That was very kind. It's clear Joelle cares about the this show and about the entire community. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for that message. I love her question. In this case, Joelle, I think your question is the answer. Mm -hmm. I think that you go, it, it's not the whole answer, and obviously there's going to be a lot of this, but when Joelle goes to an attorney, she says, is this going to be a long-term agreement or is this for, let's say, three years? Because you can do it either way, which is awesome. And then she goes, so what happens at the end of three years? Is there a balloon payment or is it? And I go, I've, the cool thing is, I've, is you get to decide that too. <laughs> I'm, I am tweeting this out. Uh, the question 
is often the answer. Okay. That's that's very nice. Thank you. I'll attribute it to you. But isn't it, in this case, when you sit down with an attorney to draw it up, you and the tenant and the attorney answer these questions legally, and what's neat is you can do it however you want. You can structure the deal however you want it to go, which is is uh, part of why this, this can be cool. Again, Jolene, though, for the tenant, right? It can be cool for both parties. So let, let's take a step back and kind of go over what the big picture of what's going on here. A lease option, as the name implies, it gives it gives the tenant the option to purchase the property after a predetermined specified period of time. And so you set the, you know, some of the terms in advance, but the renter isn't locked into needing to purchase the property. They just have the option to be able to do so. Essentially, they have the right of first refusal is another way of looking at it. Technically, illegally, those are different things. But effectively, what you're saying is, renter, I can't sell this to anybody other than you uh, within the specified time period. You know, uh, you kind of have locked down the exclusivity to have the choice to buy this. And it's your decision whether you want to exercise that choice or not. Uh, And this is the time period in which that happens. And these are the terms under which that happens. Uh, And so what you get from the perspective of a seller is some type of a premium because of the fact that you are effectively taking the home off the market for anybody else. You're removing the competition. You're locking in certain terms in advance. Um, you know, because you are guaranteeing so much for the, the renter, you get a premium for that. So that's the advantage to both parties, right? The renter gets that option. They get that certainty. They get to kind of tie it down for a little while. And then you uh, get the premium for for exactly what the, what the renter gets. Um, by contrast, a lease purchase is an agreement in which the tenant commits to purchasing the property, uh, barring some type of extreme situation, like barring, you know, the tenant isn't able to secure a long-term mortgage if you put that into the contract, some kind of other situation, the tenant really has agreed to purchase the property. What's I think you, not- could, you could think of this, Paula, more like an option, right? Mm-hmm. It's like an option on the stock. I can buy it, I can't buy it, but I almost, you know, I because I have this piece of paper in my hand, I get first right toward this during these specific conditions. Right. But Joel, in your case, because you own this home free and clear, you don't have to worry about lenders. You're in a prime position to be able to offer this as either a lease option or a lease purchase. And the advantage that you get if you decide to do this is uh, that you can charge the interest rate that you and the renter decide on. Um you can charge the the advance premium that you and the renter decide on. Basically, you get to not only receive the profits from selling the home, but you also get to receive the profits by virtue of being the bank, being the lender. And so, you know, if you think about kind of who makes money in a real estate transaction, right? Who makes money when a home is sold? The seller makes money. They make money on the sale of the home. And the bank makes money because it makes money on the loan that they issue for the sale of the home. You get to be both. And so you get to make money in two ways. And that is 
the advantage that you have. Now, the disadvantage that you have is that necessarily it means that equity is going to be tied up, right? The money that you are um, using to, to be the bank is money that you're not using in some alternate way. So that lack of liquidity is part of the disadvantage to you. There's also the risk that the tenant might default and um, walk away, right? And typically what people will say is, you know, that's not that much of a risk because if the tenant defaults, you can foreclose on the house and then you just get the house back, right? So you still retain ownership of the house, just like any other normal foreclosure, you've you've received all of the payments that they've made already, and now you have the house back again. That's true in an up market. But in a down market, if, uh, and I don't think this is going to happen, but just hypothetically, if the home were to decline in value, and then the tenant were to walk away, you'd be left holding the bag on an underwater mm-hmm. property, um, or a property that would be underwater from the tenant's perspective. So uh, that is, you know, part of the risk of being the entity that holds the securitized asset. Yeah, I have a friend, Paula, who sold a house three times. And because it's an up market, it ended up being financially very, very good for them. Wow. They sold the same house three times. Yes, uh, because the person, because it was it was this type of a deal. Now, as you alluded to, Joel, you can... You know, you will set the terms in your agreement as to how long you're going to be lending on this property. And the good news is because you own it free and clear, that answer is totally up to you. I mean, if you want to lend for the entire 30 years, uh, you're free to do so. Uh, If you want to do it for only five years, you're free to do so or three years or 10 years. That make up any number you want. Um, That is a private agreement between you and the tenant. And given that there's no other lender involved, you're free to make whatever decision you choose. That being said, if you want the tenant to hold a loan from you for a certain minimum amount of time, like if you want to put in some type of a clause or a condition in which they have to keep the loan from you, uh, you know, you, you get to be the lender for X number of years, maybe five years, and after that five-year period, then the tenant is free to shop around and refinance. You can put that in too. But if you do put that in there, there would be some sort of a, a penalty, right? The penalty that the tenant would have to pay if they wanted to refi prior to that five-year deadline. I'm using five just as an example, but it could be any X number of years. Joe, to what you said, when you meet with a lawyer and start hammering out the contract, um, these are all issues that will come out in the drafting of the contract. Yeah, it it is it is great that she's already thinking about all these what ifs cuz they are all things you can put in. And what's what's neat about this type of financing is to your point Paula and and the the explanation that you had, it's so flexible. You can truly make this good for everybody versus just the, you know, 30-year loan in a box that, that most of us right. have. Right, exactly. Exactly. You know, the big things to be wary of when you're creating this contract, uh, death, disability, divorce, right? What happens if your tenant passes away and uh, the home is passed on to the tenant's heirs or beneficiaries? What happens if the tenant gets divorced and the house ends up in a custody battle? Um, You know, you want to make sure that all of those considerations are covered. 
it's an exciting place to be. Right. Right. So thank you, Joel, for the question. And you know what? One, one last thing I want to say. Yeah. The precursor to all of this. Do you want to sell this home or are you only thinking about selling it because the tenant has asked about rent to own? Um, that's the other thing to consider. If the tenant hadn't asked about rent to own, would you otherwise be selling it? Or is this maybe a home that you want to hold on to? That's the first piece to think about. I've got one little addendum too, which is, uh, Joelle, I think I accidentally called you Jolene at one part, which, uh, which Paula is because the, the badass singer Dolly Parton has an amazing song called Jolene and how I decided that I don't know, but I'm making up names for you, Joelle. Ah, Joe, Joe can't remember Joelle. (laughs) Isn't that, is that weird? It's so close (laughs) and yet so far. Well, thank you, Joelle, for the question. And thank you, Joseph, for helping with the answer. <laughs> and thank you, Dolly, for the awesome song, Jolene. <laughs> Do, you know, you know, Dolly's a big fan of this show. I'm, I'm sure. I hope she is. I can I'm only sure. hope. I'd love to get her on the podcast. Dolly Parton, if you're listening, I'd like to interview you. Dolly, because you're listening. Let's be more positive, mm. Paula. Yes. There we go. Glass yes. half full. Yeah, don't be Glass afraid, Dolly. Full. This show can help your career. I know that Dolly's career is kind of struggling, but she comes on afford anything. We could probably help her maybe someday move it from neutral to drive. We'll come back to this episode in just a minute. But first, are you just doing it all at your company and you're thinking there's got to be a better way to, to get this all done? Well, JustWorks makes it easier for you to start, run and grow a business. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help your business. You see, great people are at the core of every business, and JustWorks can help you attract and retain top talent. So with JustWorks, you have access to medical, dental, and vision insurance and benefits, plus benefits that include wellness and mental health support, fertility and family building, even financial planning. And when you or your employees have a question about setting up benefits or paychecks, their team of experts is standing by 24-7 to help. JustWorks gives you these HR tools that comply with state payroll tax requirements, keep up with state labor laws, and access a variety of health insurance plans in any state. Regardless of whether you and your team are working remotely or in-person or hybrid or some combination thereof, JustWorks makes it simple to hire and manage remote employees across all 50 states. It's a cloud-based platform that allows managers and employees alike to quickly and securely access payroll, benefits, and other HR functionality. Learn more about JustWorks and how they can help you get more done by visiting justworks.com slash podcast. That's justworks.com slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right, well, we have one more question that we are going to tackle today. And this question comes from Sharon. Hi, Paula and possibly Joe. I have a complicated question that hopefully is also somewhat useful to other people. So it concerns whether or not it's worth selling our home before the FEMA designation on our neighborhood changes. Currently, we live in Flagstaff, Arizona, and we have a house that was not and is currently legally not in a flood zone. We own this house. We've owned it for 10 years. And in that time, we haven't technically been in a flood zone. However, there was a wildfire on federal land, and then that made the watershed compromised, and now we experience flash flooding during big rain events. We've flooded four times in the last two years, and now there's a big effort to try to restore the watershed and try to protect the homes, but that's undergoing and it could take a long time. So because of that, they may have to, and they probably will have to, remap the area for FEMA, and suddenly we will go from not being in a FEMA flood zone to having a property that's in a FEMA-designated flood zone. I'm wondering what you can tell me, if anything, about what you know about real estate that is in a designated flood zone, how that compromises the asset that is our largest asset, and whether you would recommend that we sell our property before this map amendment or map change happens, because we do anticipate that this would decrease the value of our property significantly However, if we sell, the challenge is that there's nothing else available to buy within our price range locally. So it would really put us in a tough position and even consider moving out of our city, which we love. So we're really in a stuck position where we have a great house, we have a great deal, but we know that if it changes with the FEMA flood zone, that could make a significant change to the value of this asset that we have. I would love to know your thoughts on this. Thanks so much. Oh, wow. Wow. Mm, Right? Right. Well, Sharon, first of all, thank you for the question. Uh, And I'm sorry that you're in that situation. In order to help answer the question, I reached out to a member of the Afford Anything community who is a former, a retired floodplain manager in Florida. Uh, had interviewed him for an article that I wrote while I was at Columbia about the same topic. So he said a couple of things. Uh, He listened to your question, and here's what he shared. Number one, past flooding experience doesn't necessarily mean the flood maps will change to include the property, especially since the cause of flooding is the wildfire. Engineers will have to perform what's known as an H&H study, hydrological and hydraulic study, to determine the new boundaries of the floodplain. So, takeaway, your house may or may not be in a new floodplain designated area. Number two, FEMA's new flood insurance premiums are based on proximity to the flooding source. 
And so there is right now a, quote, mandatory purchase of flood insurance clause that is still in effect for properties that are inside that 100-year flood zone, which in a 100-year flood zone means there's a 1% annual chance. There is still mandatory purchase of flood insurance for properties that do uh, fit into that category that are within the 100-year flood zone. But the actual rates that you're going to pay for coverage are based on proximity. So even if you do have to pay new flood insurance premiums, it's anybody's guess in terms of how much that flood insurance is going to cost. Flood insurance may be mandatory, but the actual rates that you pay may or may not be nominal. So the question, Sharon, that I have for you, and this is a question that, you know, you'll, you'll have to do some research in order to answer is, how much is that flood insurance going to cost? Because if we're talking about a nominal amount, then this, you know, might be, um, might not be that big of a deal. The other thing uh, that he said is to take a look at what type of mitigation options exist for the property. So a couple of examples are landscape berms or flood openings in the garage. <laughs> Drop the mic. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> this is not the question where I go. I think he's wrong. <laughs> well, I think I, this is the question where you bring in a, an expert, right? So the yeah, uh, I brought in the retired floodplain manager, and we did um, it, or right? You did it so that like so how that I attached way... me to that. <laughs> you did, Joe. You provided moral support. <laughs> you have morals. <laughs> This is the type of thing where you, you go to a floodplain manager and say, what do you think? In the world of flooding, there are, there are very different types of expertise. And as he pointed out, in the, I haven't even read the full answer, but as he pointed out in part of his answer, floodplain management in Florida is not the same as H&H uh, &H studies in Arizona, mm. right? But, but the fact remains, um, when you bring in these kinds of experts, they're able to answer such questions with a, a level of nuance that is beyond that of a somebody like a former financial advisor. Oh, I'm sitting right here. I know, right, Joe? But no, I like that. You know, I get this, uh, I've talked about this uh, previously, I get uh, coaching, like I think we all should from, my coaching comes from a great group uh, called Strategic Coach. And one of their, one of their first lessons, Paula, has been, don't ask how ask who right ask who knows this you'll end up in youtube video hell if you if, if you try to figure stuff like that on your own instead paula what you asked was who is my go-to what we know about this source is that if he doesn't know he will know who knows mm -hmm. so often often when you ask that question who not how you'll go well, i don't know any who but you certainly know the who who will know the who mm, right you you'll be six degrees of kevin bacon from the yes who, absolutely right? you know who to ask who can refer you to who to who to who to who right to hooty who the hooty who exactly <laughs> so yeah ask who not how sharon the direct answer to your question is how much is that flood insurance going to cost and the the broader answer to your question is ask who, not how. Yeah. And you know, the good news is you might not even be in a floodplain, you know, depending on that H&H &H study, your house may or may not even be in that floodplain. So, and if it is, the insurance cost might be nominal. So hopefully that would be the best case scenario. Man.
because it certainly sounds as though you don't want to move. You know, if you can stay in there, that'd be the best solution. All right. Well, Joe, I believe that we have done it. Unbelievable. That was so... That was... I, I believe we have. I do believe it. <laughs> it was so fun. The time just flew. It flew. It flew. Joe, where, uh, what are you working on these days? Where can people find you if they want to hear more of your wacky antics? <laughs> I don't know about wacky antics, but I do know that you can find me every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at the Stacking Benjamin Show. I also will be uh, the keynote speaker at our industry conference, FinCon, coming up, which is so exciting. I've got a great message for creators there, and I'll be speaking in uh, Bali at the Five Freedom Retreat coming up that's sold out and and may already be over by the time people hear this but uh, <laughs> yes joe, joe that answer is essentially i'll be in bali and you won't <laughs> that sounds too much like a flex like oh it's tough <laughs> so difficult but um but yeah if you want me to speak to your group just write to me joe at stackingbenjamins.com we'll see if we can get that done nice well thank you for tuning in uh, this is the Afford Anything podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to the show notes so you can get a synopsis of every question and all the answers. Affordanything.com slash show notes. Affordanything.com slash show notes. You can also chat with members of our community at affordanything.com slash community. And check us out uh, on all of the various socials. I'm uh, on Instagram at Paula Pant, P-A-U-L-A-P-A-N-T. Uh, and on Twitter as... Uh, oh, and on TikTok. I'm on TikTok as Paula Pant also. Um, I just recently joined. It's so addictive. <laughs> I've been fighting it for years, but I finally, finally did it. It's so addictive. It's so addictive. It totally is. Anyway, that's the show for today. Thank you so much for being part of this community. I'm Paula Pant. I'm Joe Salci. Hi. And we will catch you in the next episode. <laughs> 